Hi there and welcome to Global Heart Church. Uh, I'm Jared Keane, the senior pastor, and wherever you are tuning in from around the world today, really, really hope and pray that in our planning of this message that it's going to really inspire you for the great journey that you are on and uh, for the great calling that you have in your own life. So enjoy the message and really pray that it's a blessing to you today. Cool. Are you ready to get into the Word of God? Come on. Tonight we are going to have a look at one of the characteristics of God and the effect that it can have in your life and in my life. And we are going to have a look at God as the great restorer and God as our restorer. I don't know, I'm sure, I'm sure that many times in your life you've lost something and wished that it would be restored to you. I once had what seemed at the time to be a very devastating loss happen in my life. It was high school, year 11. And it was about that time of the year where everyone was starting to think about the year 12 ball and all of the boys were starting to ask the girls if they would be their date. And I got scared. I got scared that nobody was going to ask me to be their date to the ball. So I thought, I'll just take matters into my own hands. I'll take control of the situation. And I'll ask someone that doesn't go to my school so I can lock him in, lock him down. Everything will be okay. Be organized nice and early. And I had a particular boy in mind, but I made the mistake of telling one of my friends at school, who also was a little bit concerned about not having a date to the ball, and who also knew this boy what I was going to do. And then, to my shock and horror, without even telling me, she decided to get in there first and go and ask him before I could. I know, I know. She asked him and he said yes. And I I remember crying quite a few tears and praying to God that he would restore the situation and that I would have a date to my ball. I can genuinely remember praying on my knees, which uh, highlights how desperate I felt in that situation. Just to let you know, God did restore that situation and it was all good. It came around in the end. But... uh, God is actually in the business of restoration. It is who he is and it's what he does. And that is what we're going to talk about tonight. There is this show on Netflix called Restoration Australia. And on it, oh, have you seen it? Oh, there you go. Um, On it, there are these old heritage houses and properties that have been forgotten, abandoned, they've been maybe damaged or left for years and years, and people come through and they restore them into livable homes. And so you watch these episodes of like 52 to 57 minutes that go right into detail about the restoration process, right? What materials are being used, how they're being used, why they're being used, all to get to the end result when you get to see the beautiful house that's now livable, right? And I always find that that's my favorite part, the end result, the wow factor. I'm much more interested in the end, the aftershot, than I am in the detailed process that it takes to get there, which I think is a little bit what we're all like as humans, right? Because when we are presented with a before and an after, It's really easy for us to have faith and to trust God, right? Look at what God did. Look at what he restored. We love that. But it's a lot more challenging to have that kind of perspective when we're at the start of our journey or when we're in the messy middle, right? Look at what God is doing or look at what God is restoring. Well, what if I can't see it? What if I can't see anything at all, right? 
And last weekend, we got to see some of it. Last weekend at church, we had the most powerful Easter weekend where we watched and we heard all about the saving grace of Jesus. The fact that we are all broken, all sinful, all far from God. But Jesus himself, God in human form, came down to earth and he was able to live the perfect life that you and I can never live and therefore die the death that we deserve on the cross so that we could be restored into a relationship with God and all of the fullness that comes with that. Jesus did all of that in the cross in one moment so that when we accept him as Lord, as our Lord, and when we confess that with our mouths, in one moment, our relationship with God can be restored. One moment, one choice that you can make this evening. We'll have that opportunity in a moment. And then from that choice, this process begins of the rest of our life being restored as well. This lifelong journey with the great restorer, the God who heals our hearts, heals our minds, heals our lives, and makes us whole. He's so good. And there is a book in the Bible that paints a beautiful picture of God as the great restorer. So the book of Ruth, if it were a movie, you would probably find it under the romance section on Netflix with all the Nicholas Sparks stuff because this is a story that opens with real tragedy and brokenness and then resolves with a happy ending that just seems too good to be true. It seems so happy that it must have been scripted. Except... It is true, and it did happen, and it shows us how our God is the great restorer, the God who restores hearts and minds and lives and wants to restore yours and mine. Uh, now, the book is four chapters long, so I'm going to paraphrase it for us this evening. Are you ready? Awesome. So the book of Ruth opens during troubled times in Israel. There is a famine happening. And so one family decides to leave Israel and go to a land called Moab in order to find food. And whilst the family is living there, the father of that family, Elimelech, he dies, leaving behind his wife, who's now a widow, Naomi, and his two sons. And his two sons, they grow up in that land. They marry two native women called Orpah and Ruth. And then tragically, both of those sons also die, leaving their wives behind and their mother. So these three widows are left all alone, brokenhearted, with no one to provide for them or look after them. And so the book of Ruth begins with a glimpse into the heartbreaking side of life, right? Pain and loss. And so Naomi, the mother-in-law, she decides that there's nothing left for her in Moab anymore, so she's going to come home to Bethlehem. And she loves her daughters-in-law, so she decides that she doesn't want them to come with her. Because she knows that if they choose to follow her home, they are going to be choosing a life of being outsiders, because they'll be foreigners in a land with different languages and customs. They're going to choose a life of being husbandless and being childless, because Naomi doesn't have any sons left for them to marry, which is how it worked in the culture and the time. And they're going to be choosing a life of poverty, because they now have no male relatives to provide for them and look after them, which was also how it happened in the time. And so she tells them to stay behind and Orpah, one of her daughters, daughters-in-law, tearfully bids her goodbye, but Ruth responds differently. And we read in Ruth 1, 16 to 18, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. 
Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And so Ruth and Naomi start the journey back to Bethlehem together. And Naomi, she decides to change her name to Mara, which means bitter, and she mourns the state of her life. They arrive home, they have no one to look after them, no one to provide for them, so they need to come up with a way to feed themselves, right? And the Bible says that it just so happened to be the beginning of the barley harvest. So Ruth decides she's going to venture out and try and find a field where people are working and hope that someone will let her trail along and kind of pick up the stuff that gets left behind for food. And with Naomi's blessing, she goes off to do that. Ruth 2.3, so Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, again, that just so happened, wording, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So Boaz was a male relative with the ability to provide that Naomi had evidently forgotten all about. Now, the Bible describes Boaz as a man of noble character. He noticed Ruth, he helped her, he made allowances and exceptions for her so that she could feed herself and feed Naomi. And as he was doing that, he was living in obedience to the Israelite law, which says, be kind to the immigrant and to the poor. And so Ruth, she works in the field of Boaz and she works really hard. And he admires her loyalty to her mother-in-law and he prays that God will bless her. And so when Ruth comes home and tells Naomi what's happened, Naomi's on top of the world. Ruth 2.20, may the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now this family redeemer thing was an Israelite custom where if a man died and left behind a wife, children, land, the family redeemer was responsible to marry the widow, take up the land, protect the family. And so Naomi begins to see a glimpse of a hope and a future for her family. So for the rest of the barley season, Ruth works in Boaz's field under his protection, and she provides for herself and Naomi. And eventually, Naomi decides it's time for Ruth to let Boaz know that she's available. And so she instructs her daughter-in-law, I told you Nicholas Sparks style, um, she instructs her daughter-in-law to get rid of her grieving widow clothes, to put on something nice, to go meet him on his farm and to essentially say to him, will you redeem my family? Will you marry me? And Ruth, in her obedience to her mother-in-law and in her boldness, does that. And Boaz is impressed, again, by her, her loyalty to Naomi and he does everything that he needs to do in order to legally redeem the family and in order to marry her. And so the story and the book, it ends in this very stark contrast to the brokenness and the tragedy of the beginning, with Naomi's family being restored and provided for. Boaz and, Ru uh, Boaz and Ruth, they get married. They have a baby boy called Obed, who was the father of Jesse and the grandfather of King David. And that is how Ruth finds herself written into the very lineage of Jesus himself. What a story, right? Because this is just a story about life normal life, pain, loss, moving, familial responsibility, not having enough money. And right in the middle of it, we see that God was weaving this very intentional plan of restoration, right?
This story begins with Naomi losing everything, husbandless and sonless, and ends with her becoming a grandmother. The story begins with Ruth being a widow and an outsider, and it ends with her becoming a wife and a mother written into the very lineage of Jesus. This story gives us a look into a normal life and shows us how God was working and moving amongst it to see his greater plan come to pass. So church, be encouraged tonight. Just as God was working to restore Naomi's life and Ruth's life, he can work to restore in your life and in my life. We just need to let him. We just need to let him. So we are just going to have a look at what a life of restoration actually looks like and pull out a couple of points about restoration from the story of Ruth. And then I would love to give you an opportunity, if you haven't already, or maybe you once did and then walked away, to respond to the great restorer himself by inviting Jesus into your life. So what does a life of restoration look like? We were chatting before about Restoration Australia. And the restored homes that these episodes are about, they start out a complete mess. They're broken, they're run down, they've been damaged, they've been abandoned. See, that is the thing about restoration. It implies loss and it implies brokenness. Because you can't restore something if there was never a loss in the first place. And you can't restore something if it was never broken which is really good news for you and for me because life equals loss and we are all broken, right? All that means is that we all need Jesus. We all need the work of the great restorer in our lives. It really doesn't matter how dire and how desperate your situation in life is, God can restore. And it also really doesn't matter how okay or fine or even amazing your situation in life is, we all need the work of the great restorer in our lives. So if you were to picture an old heritage house, it hasn't been cared for in years, it's been abandoned, it's been left to decay, it's in need of restoration, picture that. And that is a really great picture of what my life and your life and what myself and yourself are like, right? Broken windows, faded walls, torn up carpet, rooms you can't even walk into because they smell so bad. Anxiety, right? Poor choices, relational breakdown, addiction, insecurity, lack of confidence, lack of purpose, unhealthy coping mechanisms, sin, right? Well, despite its broken state, the good news for us tonight is that Jesus bought your house, right? He bought my house as well. He paid for it with his very own life. And then if we let him for the rest of our lives, he will move in and he will work to restore and renew within us. He'll become the architect, the landscaper, the electrician, the plumber, the interior designer. Slowly but surely, he will work within us and we will be restored. Until one day, we'll get to heaven and that work will be completely done. Philippians 1.6, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. And the very best thing about that is because Jesus paid the price for our house, right, with his life, now when God looks at us, he doesn't see the broken windows, the faded carpets, the asbestos in the walls, the broken plumbing. He sees the perfection of Jesus instead. 
So when God looks at the poor choices that we persist to make again and again, even though we, we know better, he sees the perfection of Jesus. And when God looks at the way that we choose to reject him, choose to put other things, other people before him in our lives, he sees the perfection of Jesus. When he looks at our anxiousness, our insecurity, our anger, our bitterness, our resentment, our laziness, our offenses, our sin, he sees the perfection of Jesus. Because Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, now when God, the great restorer, looks at you and me, he does not see a broken down heritage house in need of fixing. He sees a beautiful, restored home. And so that is what a life of restoration looks like, getting to walk with God, the great restorer, in relationship with him every day, even though we don't deserve that. It's not a perfect life, and it's not a life in which everything goes our way, but it is a life that shines the grace of God and demonstrates the hand of God in every season. It's a life where nothing is wasted and God uses everything. And it's a life in which for answers, for solutions, for peace, for provision. We don't have to look inwards anymore. We can look upwards to him. All right, so two points about restoration that we can find in the story of Ruth. Number one, we must partner with God in our restoration. We must partner with God in our restoration. We see in the book of Ruth that there is this meeting of d- the divine purposes of God and, the, and human choices, right? It's not one or the other, it's both. Because this is not a story where Ruth and Naomi strived really hard to get it right, despite their terrible situation and despite their own human nature and just wrestled and fought and pushed really hard and ended up getting their own happy ending. Not at all. Only God the Restorer could work so that Ruth just so happened to end up in Boaz's field, that he just so happened to be their family redeemer, that they just so happened to have a baby who ended up being in the lineage of Jesus. Only God could do that. There was no way that Ruth or Naomi or Boaz could have manipulated those outcomes from their lives, right? But neither did they sit passive and do nothing, just expecting that God was going to make it all come good in the end, right? In the midst of her heartbreak, Ruth chose loyalty to Naomi, and then she chose to work hard in Boaz's field doing manual labor. Boaz chose to show generosity to a poor immigrant woman. Ruth put herself out there as a marriageable prospect. Boaz did all of the legal things he needed to do in order to marry her. Church, this story shows us that as we pursue God, put our trust in Him, live His way, not perfectly, but decidedly, we can be confident that He is undergirding the whole of our lives. So no matter what may come, come on, no matter what may come in the good, the bad, the beautiful and the shattering, He is working and He is moving to restore our hearts, our minds and our lives. And it also shows us that our choices to pursue him, to trust him, to live his way, not perfectly, but decidedly, have very real effects on the process of restoration in our lives. It is partially up to us. So if Jesus paid the cost for our broken down heritage houses, and now he's there, he's moved in, he's chipping away at the walls, at the floorboards, at the carpets, 
It is up to us, the choice is ours, whether or not we actually give him the space to do what he wants, to renovate that house the way he sees fit, according to his will and his word, or if we're constantly going to be getting in the way of that, right? Well, Jesus, I would love for you to come in and rip up the carpet and put in floorboards, but you see that broken window over there, that shattered window, that has sentimental value to me, so don't touch that, I want that, right? Maybe in terms of our lives, that sounds a little bit more like, well, Jesus, I'd love for you to come into my life and take away my anxiousness. Please get rid of that. But you see all of those choices I keep making that are contributing to my anxiety? I want those. You can't have those, right? Or maybe it sounds a bit like, fix the outside first, Jesus. I want to be seen as put together and successful and going forward in my life. So let's add AstroTurf and a pool and a second story. I'll let you deal with my deep insecurities and my brokenness some other day, right? In one of, um, in one of my favorite books, Anonymous by Alicia Britchole, she talks about uh, a time when she and her husband bought a fixer-upper house so that they could restore it as a project. And so they got to work restoring this house and eventually they wanted to add a second story to it. And so her handyman husband got to work. And she writes about how, much to her surprise, considering the fact that they were building up a second story, he was spending most of his time underneath the house in the raised foundations. And so when she questioned him, he explained that he was checking the support beams, right? See, when you build up, it adds stress and pressure to the foundational beams. So if they aren't strong enough, the weight of the new construction will make the whole thing collapse. And Alicia's husband knew that in order to fully restore the house, he had to start with the underneath, the support beams, the main power line, the pipes, the things that nobody who visits the house will ever see, but are the very foundations that the house depends on. See, church, when we invite God, the great restorer, to come and work in our lives, he goes for the internal, our salvation first, and then things like our security in him, our hope and trust in him, our obedience, our faithfulness to him, things that from just looking at us, people might not be able to see, but they are the very foundations of our lives. You know, we tend to want opportunities, positions, success, notoriety, the right connections, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, astroturf, a pool, a second story. Because these aren't bad things, right? They're great things and God loves to give them to us. And when they break, he loves to restore them to us. But he is so much more concerned with the state of our souls, our hearts and our minds and our lives being completely found in him. God, the great restorer, has an agenda and a plan for how he wants to restore your life and my life, but we have to partner with him. We have to give him the space to do what he wants, to come in, to, to tear down what he wants, to replace it with what he wants, which is always going to be in line with his word. And as we do that, we will find that his way was vastly better than what we wanted in the first place anyway, right? There was a point in time when the best life that Ruth could picture for herself was being a widow in Moab. And then God, the great restorer, came in, did what he wanted, and she ended up becoming a wife, a mother, written into a family and the lineage of Jesus. Church, we're not called to a life where we simply try our best to make it wherever we're going and hope for the best. God is far more involved in our lives than that. 
but we're also not called to a life where we simply do whatever we want, do what we feel, just respond to what happens around us, hoping that somehow God will make it come good in the end, because our choices have far deeper consequences than that. We must partner with God in our restoration. The band can join me if they would like to. And the second point that we can find about restoration in the book of Ruth is that we must trust that God is always working for our restoration. We must trust that God is always working for our restoration. Because things break in this world, right? In the past few months, I, myself, all alone, have somehow managed to break two full-length mirrors and three glass photo frames. I don't know how. It's a really good thing that there's no room for superstition in Jesus, because otherwise I would be in for a lot of years of bad luck. But in Christ, I'm just clumsy, so it's all good. Um, my clumsiness doesn't seem to be something that he wants to restore. It's fine. But things, they break in this fallen world, right? Our hopes and dreams get broken. Our hearts get broken. People break their word to us. We break our promises to other people. Our bodies break when we get sick. Our families break. Our relationships break. Often our expectations as to how life could, should, would pan out breaks. And we see in the book of Ruth that it opens with a lot of broken things. Death broke three marriages. It broke a family. Ruth and Naomi's source of income and survival broke. But we also see from this story that we cannot take any one isolated incident or any few isolated incidents that might happen as a part of life and decide what we think of God because of them. Right? We cannot allow isolated incidents to be what sets our perspective for how we see God. Because if we stopped right here in this story, at this point of tragedy, deep tragedy, we could come to all sorts of conclusions about God. Maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he was punishing Ruth and Naomi. Maybe he's indifferent to human suffering. But no one incident in any of our lives properly reveals the character of God, right? It is the whole of the Bible and the cross that tells us of his character as God the restorer. And it's a lot easier for us to know that than for Ruth because we live in 2021. Ruth didn't have that big picture perspective, right? And she still chose faithfulness to Naomi and trust in Naomi's God. We do have that big picture perspective. We know what Jesus did on the cross for us and we're hearing about it tonight. So that means that in seasons of broken things in our lives, when we can't quite see what God is doing or why, we also must choose to trust that the great restorer is in control and that he is always working for our restoration. John 16, says, I have told you all this so that you will have peace in me. Here on the earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart for I have overcome the world. God, the great restorer, has already overcome the world. 1 Peter 5.10 says, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. So when we can't tell which way is up and which way is down, we must trust that God is working and moving in the unseen details of our lives for restoration. He is always there, chipping away at the heritage house, sorting the plumbing, looking at the electrical, even when we can't perceive and we don't understand what he is doing. There is nothing that would deter him, even even if that heritage house burns down, gets flooded, gets completely robbed out, things like inexplicable loss in our lives, right? 
the awful choices that we sometimes make or the awful choices that other people make that affect us really deeply. The great restorer will never up and leave because there is no restoration project that is too big for him or that is not worth his time. He is always there. He is always working, restoring and making new for life. So we must trust. We must trust when the temptation comes to wrestle the tools back from him because we know better, right? Well, for sure, I thought that the brick was better than the plastering, that it should be white instead of off-white. So, all right, Jesus, I'm going to take back the ladder and the sledgehammer and the paintbrush. I'm going to do it my way. Thank you very much. And maybe I'll get what I want that way. In terms of our lives, maybe that sounds a bit more like, well, God, I thought for sure that job, that opportunity, that relationship, that clarity on what choice to make, that specific season of life was coming for me. I was so sure that was what you had for me. And now that it's fallen to pieces, maybe I have to step outside your word to get what I want. Or maybe it sounds like, well, I'll keep living my life serving you to some extent, God, but I'm going to hold on to that bitterness in my heart from the disappointment you could have spared me from. You know, trust is not a passive thing. It is intentional and it can be very hard. It doesn't come about by accident, but it is, it's the best way for us to live if we're placing our trust in the great restorer. And it's really the only way to live if we want the fullness of what he has for us. Because when we take the tools off him and matters into our own hands, our heritage homes and our lives, they'll never look the way that Jesus intended when he gave up his very own life for them. Just like in the book of Ruth, the great restorer is undergirding the whole of our lives. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is his direct action because I make choices, you make choices, everyone else makes choices, it's a fallen world. But when we choose Jesus, we can be confident that come what may, he wastes nothing and he is restoring our broken down heritage houses into beautiful homes, our broken down hearts and lives into hearts and lives that will bring Him glory and that one day our work will be finished in heaven. We must trust that God is always working for our restoration. The great restorer is undergirding the whole of our lives. Thank you so much for joining us online today. Really great to have you with us and special thanks to those also who give online. Your generosity is making the way for others to hear the message of Jesus both here in Australia and around the world. If you enjoyed today's message, I'd love to encourage you to share this message with a friend, a workmate, a family member, and let's believe together that it will powerfully impact their life for good in Jesus' name. If you're unable to be with us at one of our church locations, uh, both here in Australia and around the world, please join us online every Sunday for Global Heart at Home on YouTube. God bless and have a great week.